scripture. So if you want to just turn in your Bibles to chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. And just as you do that, just a, again, a brief explanation. Um, you know, whatever you want to put on the card. Again, we're not going to see it. We're going to pray for it. It might be a name, a circumstances. You might have the front filled up. You might have the front and back filled up. When you come up front, go ahead and put it in the envelope. Go ahead and lick the seal. Go ahead and have your name written on it so that when you come up, you're just going to drop some wax on it, put a seal on it, and then put it in this jar. So uh, when the, the ushers come down, you're going to come from the outside and then go back up on the inside, which is kind of opposite of the way that we do communion. So they'll, they'll help you with that. So that's not complicated. But I want you to have this out <clears throat> because there may be something uh, in the sermon that strikes you that you would want to add to your card in some way. Now, many of you have heard me tell this story before, but when I graduated from college, um, I was living in Greenville, South Carolina. I went to Furman University, and I was working for the double-A team, baseball team, in Greenville called the Greenville Braves. And I happened to meet the public relations person that was connected to Atlanta, and the day I graduated, I moved to Atlanta and worked for the public relations team for the Atlanta Braves. And uh, it was really a fun job, and I enjoyed meeting everybody. The, one of the hardest parts about the job was that on a game day, which a lot of times the game started at 7 o'clock at night, you still had to get there at like 7 or 8 in the morning. The game starts at 7, you, le- you leave at midnight. So you had 10 or 11 days of this all in a row. And because I was there, I, I thought, well, you know, I've got a, there's a workout facility there. I'll just bring my gym bag, and somewhere in the middle of the day, I'll, I'll get a workout in. And so I would do that, and then after the game's over, the way the, the, the stadium was arranged, all the players and the personnel would leave through a tunnel that kind of came out from underneath the stadium into the, what they call the player personnel parking lot. So here I am, 22 years old, I've got my gym bag on, I'm walking out with other PR people, and I'm walking out with other professional baseball players. And as it would happen, especially on bigger games where the New York Mets were in town or the Los Angeles Dodgers were in town, thousands of fans would gather sort of at the entrance of this tunnel, and they would be trying to figure out who's coming out of the tunnel, and they would try to put your face with the program person. So they'd be looking and trying to make a connection, and they would look at me, and they would think, okay, he looks like he could be a player. Let's try to find his face. And of course... They never did find my face in the player bulletin. But one time this lady was convinced that maybe maybe my picture had somehow magically been left out, but still thought I was a player. So she brought her teenage teenage daughter up to me and she's trying to get her teenage daughter to stand next to me and she's trying to take a little Kodak picture. So she's like, Stephanie, get in there, get next to him. Let's get a picture. And I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not a player. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm, and finally she's so insistent. I said, ma'am, I'm nobody. And she said, but you're going to be somebody someday. (laughs) So in somebody's photo album, I'm standing there and they're like, he never did turn out to be somebody. But, you know, since that, that was 30 years ago, since that time, I've had a lot of days where I felt like I was somebody, somebody a lot more significant than got their face in a baseball program. Several events, several people, several things I've been able to do that I just remember that story and feel like, yeah, I'm I'm somebody. And I want you to know that when I stood in front of these 
hundred pastors, these ministry leaders in India a week and a half ago, I told that story to them. And I said, I feel like somebody today. That, that I get the honor to travel here and to preach and teach and encourage and pray for you all who are in such a hostile environment. 1.4 billion people live in India, 3% are Christian and very hostile circumstances. So these, these couples have come from ta- small villages or towns. They're the ministry leaders. They might have two or 20 people underneath them trying to plant churches, all mostly on the smaller scale because there's so much hostility. And it was like standing before the Navy SEALs of Christianity. I mean, these were the people who were made of steel. They, they had endured very difficult circumstances. They were going to go back to very dif- difficult circumstances. And for a few days, I got to be the person who would stand in front of them and try to encourage them. So I'm going to try to do something with this sermon. We'll see how effective it is in the end. But I'm going to try to tell you some about Alpha Ministry, which is the ministry we support that I was connected to. I'm going to try to remind you of some things that we've already talked about in 1 Samuel, these first few chapters, because that's what I taught when I was over there. And then along the way, I'm just going to offer some challenges that you might want to put on your prayer card as something that you hear, that you really hear me say, but you really think it's from the Lord. So uh, just to begin with, Alpha Ministry is a ministry that's primarily at its core a church planting, church sustaining ministry. Now they have, they dig wells and they I, they do uh, health and they do education, but mostly they're planting churches. And if you go to their website, their vision says to train 100,000 frontline messengers to plant 100,000 churches where no church exists. So these messengers are primarily couples and they're trying to take these couples and send them out to places where there is no church. And there's thousands of villages there that have no church. One of the things I got to do in between my teaching sessions was to sit and talk to a pastor or a pastor and his wife and just, you know, spend 20 minutes, 25 minutes just listening to their story. Tell me how you met the Lord. Tell me how you got involved in ministry. Tell me about the, the town or the city that you're in. Tell me what's difficult. What can I pray for? And we would pray together. It was so encouraging. But this one pastor said, Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm in a village surrounded by a bunch of different, as many as 500 villages just in, in nearby proximity, and I'm the only church in the 500 villages. There's not a, another single Christian presence there. I thought, wow, what, what an overwhelming task. You know, first of all, in a hostile place, you're the only little island and he's going to go back to that. They're going to go back to that and try to reach out to, to the villages around them. Now, Alpha actually started 55 years ago with a, one couple, Cherian and Grace Matthews. And Cherian and Grace Matthews both grew up in the southern part of India, sort of down towards the tip. And in the southern part of India, it's a little bit more Christianized. And mostly because that's most, most scholars believe that Thomas, doubting Thomas, when he, after the resurrection of Christ, he actually moved to India and he died preaching to Hindus there. So imagine this, the irony of doubting Thomas going to a place where there's millions of gods and he's trying to communicate to them, no, there's only one true God. And there is a uh, church there that's 
apparently where he died, where his uh, grave is. And so in Southern India, there's some Christian influence and both Charian and Grace, even at a young age, they felt called to move to places where there was no Christian influence, which really would just be outside of the South into Northern India. And Grace would tell you this story that she felt a special call in her life early on when she was 11 years old. She was uh, living in a a small uh, home and she woke up and she woke up to a voice saying, Grace, get up and move into the next room. And she realized when she woke up, she was just dreaming this voice. So she went back to sleep. And then she heard the same voice, Grace, get up and move out of this room. And so she said, ah, this is a dream. I've had the same dream again. Then the, the, it happened a third time. And she felt like, hey, this is the Lord trying to tell me to get out of this room. She gets out of the room. And as soon as she takes her out of the room, the roof falls down and crushes the cot that she'd been sleeping on. And it kind of had the feel of, you remember when Samuel's in the temple and he's getting the call, you know, and he thinks it's Eli and it turns out to be the voice of the Lord and it happens multiple times. Well, even at a young age, Grace felt like she was being preserved for something. And as a teenager, she goes to a Bible school. She has, she gets an arranged marriage with Cherian, who's also at this Bible school. And then together they decide to move to a Northern city in India called Baroda, which is where they live now. And when they moved there, they moved into a house that has two 10 by 10 rooms. So just let's just absorb that. That's your home. Two 10 by 10 rooms, and then they have a little kitchen connected to that. They don't know anybody in this town of thousands, maybe millions of people. There's no Christian presence in any way. And every Sunday, they take all the things out of one of their 10 by 10 rooms, and they put it in the other room, and they hold church. And of course, in the beginning, it was just the two of them. Nobody came because there were no Christians. But month, week after week, month after month, Cherian would go house to house, street to street, anybody he could have a conversation with, and just try to tell them about the good news about Jesus. And after several months, then some people would come and say, I want to hear more. And he would say, well, come on Sunday morning. We have this you know, time of fellowship together. And, and that began to grow and sort of snowball. And some of the people who met Jesus then said, oh, I want to take this message back to my village or back to my family. And he would try to encourage them and train them as best he could and then send them back to their village. And hopefully then they could plant a church. And essentially, that's what Alpha still does. People come into their churches, they meet Jesus or Jesus meets them. And they, they get interested. They have some leadership skill. They go through a Bible training school now. It's, it's a lot more uh, complicated now uh, because it's a better system. But, and then they send them back out to different villages or towns that don't have uh, any Christian influence. So now 55 years later, this one couple planted like uh, the Psalm 1 tree by the stream of living water, trying to bear fruit, whatever season it may be in, after 55 years, they've planted 4,700 churches in villages that never had a church. They've trained up 47,000 messengers that have gone through this Bible training school. So think about this, just, just one faithful couple. One couple who would just say, we are really going to uncouple ourselves from the world we are going to take both of our hands and put them on a, an obedient vision from Jesus. And who knows what God may do with little or with many or few. 
And they've had a chance of 55 years of faithful ministry, now retired but still involved, to see how this thing is, this one tree has now become an, a, basically a forest. And so one of my challenges for me and, and being there particularly, but for you is, what's God called you to do? Maybe you're still wrestling with that, but my guess is that there are a few of you that feel some sense of, I, I know God wants me to do something. It may be move somewhere. It may simply be engage in a conversation with somebody. It may be get involved in something, ministry or, or some community service. I, I don't know what that is, but there are plenty of you that probably have some sense, but for whatever reason, you can't really let go or you, you're, you're too afraid to grasp on. And so you sort of stand in this spot that you, you're not super effective because you're kind of connected to your old life. You're afraid to get connected to this because you don't know what God may do. And my encouragement to you to just say on the card, God, I, I know this is the person, this is the thing. I, it's, you've put it on my heart. Many different little things have happened that you just keep bringing it to mind. And I'm going to write that down. And, and we're just going to pray for you, whatever that is, that, that God might, might so cause you to, to really let go with both hands. And who knows what God might do with your little faithfulness or, or mine. Well, now back to Cherry and Grace. Their oldest son is Benny Matthews. He's now the CEO of Alpha. Many of you have met him. He's been here, preached from this pulpit. And so um, we got connected with Alpha through Spence Hackney, who's on their board. So that's how we've been connected. And I was talking to Spence before I left, and he was saying, you know, Paul, uh, as a board member, I, I get to see a lot of the internal numbers and Christ Community Church, either as a church or individuals in the church, we're, we're one of the most supportive churches of all the churches that support Alpha. And that, I mean, you know, I was like the Grinch heart, you know, it grew three times, you know. I, I don't have a Grinchy heart. I have a big heart already, but it grew, you know, because I was like, these people, they've responded to, 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 by prayer, by financial giving, uh, a couple of years ago, we sent $10,000 there to, to help build a church. And I got to meet the pastor of that church. And I thought, that's so awesome. You know, we sent $10,000 and you're in the church that we, you know, sort of built. We got a, a little play, piece to, to play in there. And there's lots of ways that we have been um, helping them. And I know Benny would want me to say, thank you for that. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your interest and again, Spence and some other folks will be up the lobby if you want to know how to get more involved. Well, last September, Benny called me and he said, Paul, we have an annual conference. And at this annual conference, we have 100 of our top ministry leaders. These are the people who are uh, over several different people who are in training. And again, they might have three or four people. They might have 25 people underneath them. And they're going to be there. Their wives are going to be there. And he said, you know, Paul, the first time we did this conference, it wasn't 100 people. I don't remember what he said, but let's say it was 25. He said, we brought these pastors together. And there, at this point, we met at like a retreat center. It was a Catholic retreat center. And it, looked, it was set up sort of like a college where it had dormitories. And so every couple got their own room and a bathroom, like you might think of a dorm. And he said, the first time we did the conference, 
that was the first time for every couple they'd ever been in a room by themselves overnight. Can you imagine that? They'd been married for a number of years, but coming to this conference was the first time they'd ever slept in a room just by themselves. So that gives you a feel of the kinds of people, kinds of environment they're coming from. And he said, Paul, we have these hundred people and they're, in a, they're all networked and they're going to go back and whatever the Lord puts on your heart, they're going to share it with the people underneath them and they're going to be sharing it to their churches. And what we need to have is we've got to have somebody come in here and really teach us the Bible. That we've got to have that. This is such a critical moment. We can't, this is not something we can miss on. And I know that's what you like to do. So would you come? I know it's not a great time. I know you're doing this capital campaign, but we need, we need somebody like you to come. Would you come? So, I, you know, I said, yes. And I want to say thank you for allowing me to go. Because it's, it's a hardship. It's a hardship on the staff or the elders or you all try to operate in a different way. It's always easier to have everybody, you know, on the team, in the huddle. And I just want to say thank you for, for letting me do it. But I also want to thank many of you who've, who've been around the ministry for a long period of time, who've helped me to be the kind of preacher who can be this kind of person. I mean, the first sermon I ever gave at Christ Community Church in 2002, now 17 years ago, was also the very first sermon I ever gave at any church. So it wasn't really, I mean, it wasn't a great sermon. Um, but, but you all, with your encouragement and your trust and your investment, I want you to know that it multiplied by thousands last week. Your, your constant, faithful encouragement and investment had a massive multiplying effect last week. And I want you to feel a part of that. I got to be the person who was at the, the tip of the spear to see it, but I want you to be encouraged by that. Well, when I arrived at my hotel, it was three o'clock in the morning in India. I'm at the front desk and Benny calls down from his room and says, hey, you know, the other pastor who was supposed to help you at the conference uh, he's not going to be allowed to come into the country. He got held at the airport. Uh, he had to call the U.S. Embassy in order to get a flight to come back to America. So, Paul, sleep well. I'll see you at lunch, but you're doing the whole conference now. <laughs> so, if you prayed for me, it was super, it would have been helpful anyway. But at that moment, I'm at 3 a.m., I'm like, okay. And, but what I did, I knew I was going to do this beforehand, was I was going to just take the sermons that I've been giving in the fall out of 1 Samuel and just apply them to these pastors to encourage them because it's such a great leadership book. And so it was really fun and fascinating to preach the same content to a different culture because the way they received it or the way they heard it, of course, is according to the things that they deal with, just like you and I would hear it a certain way. And so I just want to run through several of the themes just to remind us and be an encouragement to us as I walk through Samuel. The very first uh, time I spoke, I talk, talked about Hannah. And you remember Hannah from chapter one. Hannah is this uh, little tiny light against a dark horizon. And the dark horizon comes out of Judges, that you'll remember. This was a time where, where the, there was no king and the people did whatever they thought they wanted, whatever was right in their own eyes. 
And so a country who's gotten uncoupled from the word of God, imagine this country has Moses and Joshua as its first two leaders. And then they just go in a downward spiral. And in the downward spiral, this country that was connected to God's word gets disconnected over time. And now it's a country all of individuals. And every individual is a king. And whatever you think is right is right. Imagine living in a country like that. And so in this dark culture that's collapsing, the church is collapsing at the same time. Because Eli and his two sons, they're wicked. So the wickedness is on the inside and it's on the outside. And it looks like it's a hopeless situation. But in in 1 Samuel chapter 1, this tiny little star appears on the horizon. And the tiny little star is a a faithful, desperate, praying woman. And this faithful, desperate, praying woman launches Samuel, who launches David, who leads to the king of kings. And as I was talking to them, as I'm talking to you, and trying to encourage them and say, one faithful woman, one desperate prayer. It may not seem like much, but God can launch something that you can't even possibly imagine. Every woman in that room, I felt like Hannah. I know what Hannah feels like. They do know what Hannah, I don't really know what Hannah feels like. I'm not the lone star against a black drop culture, but when they go back to their towns, they understand the need for desperate prayer. And maybe just on your card, you you need just to have more desperate prayer. I mean, Hannah feels a little bit like the woman, the bleeding woman. Remember her? That, that, You've tried everything to try to fix yourself and then you can't fix yourself and you just go, I got to throw myself on Jesus. And she's kind of gotten to that point where I can't get anything to work and I'm throwing myself on the Lord. And maybe that's where you need to be today. You just need to stop trying to figure out this circumstance, that money thing, this person, that thing. Just say, you know what, God, I've tried to fix myself and now I just have to throw myself on you. I'm not gonna know everything there I could possibly know, but I know enough about myself and I know enough about you to launch myself on you. And maybe that's just your prayer for your card. When I talked to them, I reminded them that Hannah, she didn't get to see much light. And she only lived long enough for her to see, you know, Samuel to grow up to be a young boy. But she, she just got to get to see like the first few rays to come across the horizon. And then thousands of years later, Mary is re-singing her song in Luke chapter 2 because of Hannah's faithfulness. And I told them that, you know, in your little town, your little village, You may not get to live long enough to see much light. But there'll be people hundreds of years from now in India who will say, I'm a Christian because of the faithful, desperate prayer of this woman back here. And when I said that, every hand is up. Amen. May may that be so. 
Very few people, the 3% Christian, very few people are going to see much sun rise in their little town or village. But they trust God that he's going to take that and over time he's going to extend it out in ways that they can't even imagine. And my prayer for us is that we would have that same kind of, that same kind of courage, that same kind of, of vision. Well, then I went on to talk about God's quiet work in shaping Samuel. This is a very fascinating piece of, uh, of, of, of the book in chapter 2. And I want you to just walk along with me. Uh, Eli and his sons are very wicked. They're the corruption within. And we talked about that during a part of those sermons. And you notice just how this works out in chapter two, verse 11, it says, uh, the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. It's just a, a small little marker. And then from chapter, uh, from verse 12 down to verse 17, it talks about the darkness of Eli and his worthless sons. And then in verse 18, it says, and Samuel is ministering before the Lord. And just sort of in the background, not at the front of the stage, nobody really knows, notices or knows Samuel, but he's just before the Lord. And the Lord is just quietly shaping him. And then in verse 22, it's this rebuke of Eli and his wicked sons. Then you have verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then again, you have this long several verses of darkness that close in all the way to the end of the chapter. And then chapter three, verse one, now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. So here's Samuel. He lives in a, in a dark time. Not only is the culture collapsing, the church is collapsing. As far as we know, he has no father figure that's around on a regular basis. If he has any mentor, it's Eli and his two wicked sons. But yet he grows. It's like growing in, in the darkness of this manure. Somehow he's able to grow. How is he able to grow? Because he's before the Lord. And as he's before the Lord, Lord begins to change him slowly over time until he's ready to step onto the stage. That may be where a lot of us are this morning. In 2019, you just need to be before the Lord. That's the main thing. You're, you're not in a position to move out too much. You're in a position to say, I need to be changed. And we talked about this as an illustration. Remember, it's like getting a suntan. You know, you tell somebody, I'm going to go work on your, well, I'm going to go work on my tan. Well, you don't work on your tan. You sit, Right? But what the work is, is I sit in front of the object that changes my complexion. And that may be where some of you are. Are You just, I need to actually sit in front of the Lord. I need to spend a whole year getting my complexion changed because I look too much like the world. When I go out into the world, I don't look any different than the world because I've never really sat before the sun. And you may need a whole year, this quiet work that God's doing just to say, you know what, God, my complexion's never really changed. And I just need people to pray for me that I would pray, I would memorize scripture, I would come to church, I would be before the Lord. So I actually had something to offer as I stepped outside into this darkness. That's how Samuel was changed. That's how every Christian changes. And maybe that's a challenge for you in terms of changing. But one of my favorite parts of the book so far, and we've done 14 chapters, is 
uh, chapter 4, 5, and 6. And this was the, the time that probably got the most uh, interesting responses from the people because I talked about how, and you'll remember this, how a lot of times the Bible is like a, a, a long piece of music and there's chords that play all the way through the Bible and a lot of these same chords play out even into our lives. And in 4, 5, and 6, it's really about God taking center stage and cutting off the head of evil. So where is that chord first played? Where God promises to come and cut off the head of evil. Well, you know by now, Genesis chapter, that's the answer to all my questions, Genesis chapter 3. The the failure in the garden was a failure of leadership. Adam is the one who's supposed to be protecting God's territory. And if evil comes in, he's supposed to cut it out. And he doesn't, he fails. And so God promises a second Adam, another man born of a woman who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And this theme gets played over and over and over. It gets played even today. And so you see a lot of the intersections happening in 1 Samuel. Remember, first of all, Eli takes the center stage. He's wicked. So when he hears that the ark of God has been captured, remember, he's heavy. He falls back in his chair, and guess what? He breaks his neck. Second thing, the ark of God goes into the temple of Dagon, chapter 5. Remember, Dagon is this uh, statue, this idol, half fish on the bottom and a man on the top. And they put the ark of God right next to the statue. And when they come back the next morning, what do they find? The God has fallen over and his neck has been cut off. David, when he kills Goliath, he runs up to Goliath after he's hit him with the stone. He takes out Goliath's sword. And what does he do? He cuts off his head. Saul, who was supposed to be the king, but turns away from God, the very last chapter in the book, verse chapter 31, he gets his head cut off. All these are are chords that get played through the Bible, that God is going to destroy evil. He is going to crush the head and the tongue of Satan. And how does he do that? He does it on the cross. Satan is an accuser. And when Jesus comes, the perfect lamb of God to absorb all of my sins, he takes away the tongue of Satan. He cuts Satan's tongue out. So that when you and I as believers stand before a holy God, Satan has nothing to say because Jesus has taken away all of our sin. And that's how he crushes Satan. And now as a believer, as I walk in faith with Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Paul tells us, put on the full armor of God. Because you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against principalities and powers. You're wrestling against things that are trying to invade your soul. You're trying to wrestle against things that are trying to invade your culture. And what's the one weapon you have? It's a sword. And what is that sword? It's the word of God. And the way you defend your soul and the way you get out and defend the culture is by the truth of the word of God. And so God is still looking for people who know his word. 
He's still looking for Adams and Eves who will stand in his place and say, I'm not going to let evil come into this temple. I'm going to stand in a culture and I'm going to be fighting against evil and I'm not going to be fighting it with my fist. I'm going to be fighting it with the truth of the word of God. And you know, without recent, knowing recent events, you know our culture is in desperate need for people to be out in the public square with the truth. But this week, you had to have heard the news of the abortion bill passed in New York. And here they're, they're legalizing abortion up to the day of the, the birthday of the child. And of course, they put all this language in the health of the mother, but it's just really for any reason. A woman can come in and say, I'm going to have an abortion. The due date for my son or daughter is tomorrow. And that's okay. And as terrible as that is, if you watch the video, to me, when they pass the bill, here's the worst part about it. The people in the legislature stood and cheered about it. And I just thought, where have we gone? How far off the mark are we as a culture? Well, what's the hope for our culture in that dark moment? It's for somebody or somebody to know the truth and to have the courage to step into that place and speak the truth no matter what the cost is. But I am telling you, if you or I want to stay, step into those kinds of places, whether it's an individual conversation or it's in Raleigh or some other place, you're going to have to spend time before the Lord and get your complexion changed. You're not going to be strong enough to do it just by your own power. And so God is clearing the stage of his enemies. He's looking for partners who will want to join with him. And we see this chord played all the way through scripture and we see it played even in our own lives. So maybe for you, just when you think about your prayer card before I get to the last point, maybe there's just something that needs to be cut out of your life. Just this habit, you just, it's like a pet or an old friend. You just somehow you can't, you can't conquer it. You can't get rid of it, but it, it's, it's an anchor. You can't move forward in some way. And, and I'd just like for you to put it down and we'll pray for you about it, that God would, would supply the Holy Spirit and circumstances in a way that you would just finally cut that off and be able to move in the direction God wants you to move in. The last night and the last point that I want to make, the last night of the conference was personally the most moving. <coughs> I was talking about Jonathan and the armor bearer in 1 Samuel 14. And this was the sermon I gave, the last sermon I gave before I went on the trip. And you remember the story Saul's supposed to be fighting the Philistines, but he wants to do it on his own terms. And he ends up getting locked into this cave of fear. He's literally in a cave and he's frozen in fear. He, he knows he can't win because he's got 600 people on his side. And on the other side, there's 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops that are numbered like the sand of the sea. So he knows he can't win. He doesn't have any hope of God intervening because he's walked away from God. So he's frozen. 
And what happens in chapter 14 is such a great story. Jonathan, his son, and his armor bearer, they walk out. They walk out of the cave of fear. And they stand at this ravine. And just on the other side, they can see, they can hear the Philistines gathering for battle. And you remember the, the line, Jonathan's standing there with his armor bearer and says, who knows? Who knows what God might do? I say we charged and go to the other side. What does the armor bearer say? Good luck, Jonathan. I mean, give it a try. I'll be right here, you know. No. Remember that? He's, I'm with you heart and soul. So these just two people, just two people, letting go of all of their fear, holding on to God, and saying, I don't know what God might do but I'm going to try to move forward and just see how God might use my little piece of obedience, my little faithfulness, and multiply it out, which is exactly what happened. And when I'm telling this story to people who have fought these battles, these are Jonathans and armor bearers in this group, and I say, you may have to charge uphill in front of thousands of people who are very hostile, they all rise to their feet. And they all start cheering, amen, yes. And they all start singing and breaking out in prayer. And I'm praying. And, and when I'm praying in India, you know, if you're praying in India, it's never a solo event, right? It's, I start praying and everybody starts praying. So they just figure, hey, God can hear everybody's prayer at the same time. We just don't need Paul praying. We'll all pray. So all of us for like 10 minutes, we're all just standing there, hands up. We're just all praying and shouting out to the Lord that we would be Jonathans. We would be armor bearers. We would be the people who had the courage to get out of the cave of fear and walk into different places. And who knows, none of these people, none of these people are unaware that there's possibly pain charging up the hill. Between the times of the teachings, I got a chance to just sit with the pastors, maybe 10 or 15 of them, hear their stories. And I, I would always ask, what's one of the hardest things for you? What's, what's difficult about being in your town, your village, being in your church? And this one guy said, it's my dad. He's the hardest part, part of my church. And I said, why is that? He said, when people visit my church, he finds out who they are and he goes and threatens them that if they ever come back, harm is going to come to them. That's my dad, who no longer talks to me because I've become a Christian. And that's the town I'm going to go back to and try to serve. So, so when I'm telling them about Jonathan, he goes, yeah, I've charged up that hill. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, this isn't new, Pastor Paul. This is something I do. It's one guy, what a delightful man. I wish you could see him. Just joy. You know, one of the kinds of guys when you meet him, just joy's coming out of his eyes, coming out of his pores. And he lives up near the northern border of India and Pakistan. And this is one of the most hostile areas in India because there's Muslims there, there's Hindus there, and there's a group called Sikhs. And when I was talking to the translator, he said, Paul, everybody knows this is like the hardest place to live in India if you're a Christian. And he was talking about how he was a Sikh. He, he met Jesus. And now he's trying to minister to these towns that are super hostile to him. 
Lots of, lots of pushback to him being involved in, in the, the, the events of the city. And he said, you know, Paul, by God's strength, we're going to try to go into three new towns this year. And I thought, what courage. I mean, he, he's going to put himself and his wife on the line to just walk into a town who doesn't want to have anything to do with him. So when at this last night, when we're all standing and praying, I, I look at him in the back, a tear rolling down his cheek. And I think, he, know, he knows what it means to be Jonathan. He's already charged up that hill. He's got to go back and do it again. This other pastor, he said, Paul, the most difficult thing for us is that we're, we have this village that has five wells. And if you become a Christian, you can't use any of the wells. They don't let you use any of the water in the city. So you have to go outside the city. Well, this is very complicated. Imagine just having to go outside of Wilmington to get your water. And so we made a petition to say, could we just have one well? Could somehow the Christians use one well? And they said, okay, you can. And it starts on this date, whatever the date is. And the day before they were able to use the well, the whole village got together and defecated and urinated in the well and said, hey, that's your well. And here they are on the last night. And I, Paul Phillips in Christ Community Church, who's got coffee and air conditioning and a car, people who are going to say, great job today. I mean, you're going to say, great job, are you not at the door? <laughs> you are now. But I'm, I'm trying to encourage these people and at the last day, they're standing and clapping. We're so glad you came, Pastor Paul. I was like, this is so reverse. And, and, and I, I tried to tell them, if my congregation were here, they would be standing like a parade. They would be applauding you because you're the ones that are going out right on the front lines in the hardest places. So it caused me to just ask myself, Paul, is there something you're unwilling to do is some fear. Why would you have fear when you're around? You know, when you get around these people, you feel like you've got an S on your chest, you know? And I, I want us, and especially for you, I want you to have that courage. It's just a few days on earth. The time grows short for everyone here. And you may be just called to one particular person or conversation or situation. Or you may be called to get involved with something in the city. I don't know what it is, but don't be afraid. We would love to, to pray for you about those things. So what's going to happen now? It's not complicated, but sometimes people get nervous about it. You're going to just come up here and you're going to have your card and just lay it. Don't hold on to it. Just lay it on the table or lay it on the plate. And we're going to hand you one of these little sticks that's got the wax. You just kind of hold it at a 45 degree angle, three or four drops, put the little stamp on it, and then you'll put it in the jar. And so you might want to just finish up what you're writing. You might want to pray over the card yourself. You can certainly chat with the person next to you, but the elders are going to come forward. The Ushers are coming come forward, and again, they're just going to help you move from the outside and then back up in the aisle. And then when, when everyone's done, we'll, we'll close with a, a closing song.